Thank you very much, Anderson. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. A year ago this week, everything changed. COVID came, and common sense and leadership left. Denial of the reality made us sick, literally. People got sick, often really sick, all over the country. Schools and businesses closed. You know the story. You've lived the pain. Jobs lost. Often we had more people die than should have ever happened all over this country, half a million and counting. And why? You know and I, because of COVID, period. Right now, we have more hungry kids and adults than at any time in this country since the Great Depression. Why? Because of COVID. Millions thrown into poverty, perhaps the first time in their lives. Millions of others already struggling, thrown into deeper desperation. I know that many of you watching are among them, and you know the reason for your pain, COVID. The problem is so huge and so persistent. President Biden says the fix should be two. Not so fast, say the right side of the aisle. A lot of this help for the poor, for the hungry, the desperate, not really about COVID. So let's not do it. You think I'm making it up? Listen to the leader of the opposition. Only 9% addresses the fight against the virus itself. You get this massive bill with only 1%, 1% for vaccinations that's stuffed with non-COVID related spending that even top liberal economists say is wrong for the recovery. What caused the loss of the jobs and the wages and the businesses then? Our economy still has nine and a half million fewer jobs than at this time last year. At the rate that we're growing right now because the recovery is so great, at the rate that he calls so great, it will take us two years to get back to where we were. You think McConnell would go give that speech in Kentucky with the people who are broke and hungry there? You don't need this much help. It's not really about COVID. Then what is it about? Tell them that that's why you delayed this process, despite the fast coming deadlines affecting millions, because you just don't think people need this much help. That is why the Democrats had to muscle this through with zero Republican support. The idea that this is an abandonment of bipartisanship assumes that the opposition party wants to do anything with the Democrats, and you know that that is not the case. So yes, it was a cram down, and Biden will now get sole credit for bringing this country the biggest relief package for people, not just banks, in a very long time. In terms of timing, the bill should be on his desk as soon as Wednesday, unless the opposition party finds yet another way to slow down the process. This bill is huge for people in pain in this country, but it's more than that politically. It is a distillation of where things stand. This is metaphor for the moment. The opposition party says it is for the working class, but they refuse to do what most of you in the working class wanted. Most of the country supports this bill. And for those who say, well, come on, Democrats would block the same way they are wrong. Not on this one. All Senate Democrats voted for Trump's first stimulus bill in March 2020. And in December, nearly every Senate Democrat voted for passage. Facts. 
No Republicans voted for this bill in the Senate. Now, not only won't the opposition party help, they are now lying about the relief just to sow division. Witness. They had a chance on Saturday morning to stop checks from going to prisoners, from going to the Boston bomber, for instance. And on that vote, they declined. Just goes to show how radical their ideas are. Pushback, no pushback, no pushback. You know why? Because that's the agenda they want to get out there. Senator Tom Cotton just admitted that he is a radical. He said those ideas are radical, right? He voted for the first two relief bills and prisoners got money in the first two relief bills. Two laws Trump signed in 2020, Senator Cotton voted for both. Neither of those bills contained any language prohibiting prisoners from relief funds. So why does it bother him now? Division. Opposition is the position, especially when it comes to race. Now, why give it to prisoners? Advocates will argue that the relief money will help those behind bars when they get out soon in an era of high unemployment. You like it, you don't like it. Fair, either way, you can make the argument. But Cotton has no high ground except on Hater Hill because he voted for the same thing he now says he opposes. And what about the kids? The opposition party says it cares about kids, but it doesn't want to help them get out of poverty. Listen to Biden. This plan is going to make it possible to cut child poverty in half. Let me say it again. It's significant, historic. We'll cut child poverty in half. I mean, just think about that as a proposition. McConnell, Cotton, the opposition party, they're opposed to cutting child poverty in half. This bill would expand the child tax credit to $3,600 for each kid under six and $3,000 for those under 18. Households could receive payments monthly rather than a lump sum once a year, which could make it easier for families to cover their expenses. It's like forced savings or budgeting. The headline has been the $1,400 stimulus check for many Americans. But this is also about helping the poor, the hungry, get schools open, get small businesses open, and yes, a ton for vaccine distribution. Now, is there pork in this bill? Hell yes, there is, like so many others. It is bigger, arguably, than it needed to be. But be very clear, the opposition party had no problem with pork and unfunded tax cuts when they did it for the rich. 83 cents of every dollar to the top 1%. That was their reality then. Where are they now? For this state of play, let's turn to the senator that mattered the most in all of this, West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Chris, good to be with you again. How do you feel about this? Do you celebrate it as the major success that the president and the other members of your party do? Absolutely. It was a big success. Uh, everything you mentioned, I can't, I can't uh, expand on that because you hit everything, Chris. But the thing that we did, we targeted, there's an awful lot of money going out. And we were concerned, or I was concerned, about all of it going at one time. So we basically targeted it in what we call tranches. This is the first time that cities and municipalities, counties and the state will get money this year and be able to uh, attract money next year and, and be able to take care of infrastructure. 
the first time that a city or county will be able to fix a water project, sewer project, or internet without all of the uh, without all of the regulations and all the oversight and all the bureaucracy, the hoops they have to jump through. Tremendous piece of legislation that's going to create an awful lot of employment all across this country. Why isn't that and, all pork? And uh, the child tax credits you were. T Pardon me. Why isn't that all pork? as the members of the opposition party say it is. That's all pork. None of that should have been in this. Not about well, COVID. I think I don't think I don't think there's a there shouldn't be a Republican or a Democrat doesn't understand or doesn't see uh, the infrastructure needs that we have around our country. Just look in your backyard, wherever you may live. Yeah, whatever but don't county, do it now. Just do the vaccine and the health care stuff now. Do all that stuff another time. That's their argument. Well, the, the COVID relief is a lot more than just putting vaccines in the arms. Basically, we want to get people. That's the first and foremost thing that we have to do. And the president said there'll be enough uh, vaccine serum for us to have uh, get every adult in America uh, vaccinated. Uh, we have to be ready to take off, too. And we got criticized a little bit about that. But uh, the economists have been telling us that the, the concerns that we may have is come July uh, that basically this economy should take off. Are we going to have the workforce ready to engage right. again? So, so there were some concerns there that we talked about and try to work through it. So you those concerns. I processed this weekend and watching into the Sunday shows how people were coming at you and on what basis. Uh, unfair to me yeah. is you saying that we really don't know how much money should be in this bill and all these different forms of relief because there's a lot of money that hasn't been spent yet. And how are we making that calculation? I don't hold that against you. You know, you don't have to join the pack on everything. Uh, that is a legitimate argument. How much do you need to juice the economy mm -hmm. when you haven't put on all the money? The other part, I think is fair criticism, but I know you have an explanation for it and I want you to offer it now. You say, hey man, uh, we gotta work with the other side. Uh, that's why I'm against the filibuster thing because you gotta keep working with the other side. Who, Senator Manchin, who on the right do you believe, seeing how none of them would vote for this, who, on the right in the Senate, do you believe would work on H.R. 1 or the minimum wage or anything like that with Democrats? Well, I think that every Republican wants to raise the minimum wage. Everyone's just not in sync with Bernie Sanders at $15. A lot of the areas already have $15. I agree with Joe Biden when he says anybody that goes to work every day and works full time should be above the poverty guidelines. That's where my $11 comes in. This is stuff that we're just not making up or I'm making up. Basically, I'm talking to people as professionals who basically look into this. And you say about the economists, the economists are the ones telling us that this economy is going to take off. Let's get ready to go. And you said that no Republicans got involved at all the process. I had 10 Republicans I worked with for about a month. And a lot of the things that I was able to get in the bill were things we worked with them, Chris. Well, why didn't they and vote the biggest for thing we did is put the tranches well, it was higher than what they wanted it to be, I guess. You'd have to ask them. But a lot of the things we talked about, they never thought it should be above uh, a certain figure. I think they would have gone 1, 1, 1, 2, or 1, 3. But at 1, 9, they might have thought it was bigger than what they would vote for or support. I what I'm know. saying is... I want to make sure that we're able to come out of this, come out of this, uh, this COVID. And it's going to take longer than just this year. We're going to have to be facing this in 2022, and I, we have money that's spread out for that part. I don't, I don't disagree time. with that, and I think it was sensible uh, to be long-term on this uh, and not just to come up with a big number just to impress people politically with a big number. I hear you making True. those arguments. I don't know that you want to get caught being a proxy for Republicans who aren't willing to vote for something but will work through you to get it done. I mean, look at H.R. 1. 
I really think that's going to be a tough – I've known Joe Manchin a long time. He's a tough guy. I've watched him handle tough situations. This is going to be tough because H.R. 1, if you guys don't have federal legislation on it, Senator Manchin, you are not going to be able to stop a wave of what you know are really strict voter suppression laws all across the country. Listen to what your colleague Senator Graham said about this, this bill. So H.R. 1 will come to the Senate and it will it will die in the Senate because we have the ability, as long as Democrats work with us, to make sure you need 60 votes. And not one Republican is going to vote for H.R. 1 because it's a federal takeover elections. The Democrats are going to come to you and say, we need this bill. Otherwise, you're going to set back voting 40, 50 years in this country. Now what? Well, first of all, Chris. I think you said that I'm a proxy. I, I've been around this for a long time. I did not say no you are a proxy. A proxy I did not any... say you are a proxy. I, I know, said you I don't know. want the Republicans My... to use you as a proxy. All due respect. No one. Hey, Chris, you know me a long time. No one uses me at all. I'm my own person. I'm more of a moderate, centrist type of person, always looking to bring people together. That's where I come from. That's how I was raised. With that being said, I believe I'm a pure optimist. I believe people want to work together, and they should. I believe everybody, and I will fight for everyone to have the right to vote. But I believe voting is a state-by-state issue, always has been. Tenth Amendment is there for a purpose. It's a state's rights. But we have to basically set and make sure that no one is denied the right or obstructed from voting. We've got to make sure. Can we find that? I haven't seen. I haven't really dove into the, uh, to H.R. 1. I have not seen it yet. We've been so in, engulfed in this bill that we haven't gotten on it. I'm sure I'm, I'll be brought up to speed this week on it. But I'm just saying you heard Senator Graham. Um, and I'm sure he hasn't looked at the bill either. I understand He's just that, saying that, he doesn't want to get involved with the yeah. states, of course. But there's always been a federal override through the Voting Rights Act and other sure. uh, jurisprudence on it that you can't pass laws that are designed to violate the Constitution like equal protection. And that's exactly Correct. what's happening in I waves agree. across the street, uh, across the country in these states. And what happens if it comes down to the filibuster and no Republicans want to vote for it um, and they want to stall it? Well, the only thing I've said, let me tell you about the, from the filibuster. The, we are we are a unusual body of government, Senate. It was designed to be unusual. And I think you and I have spoken about this before. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is, don't you, you know, if you're going to have whether it's going to be H.R. 1 or whether it's going to be infrastructure, don't you ought to think you ought to go give us 30 days to go through the process to see if they're basically going to be obstructionists or not, to see if there's any yes. pathway forward? Yes. I think you ought to try before you go to reconciliation. As long as it's not an emergency. We're going to I think you should give people time. I think you should be able to let them make their case. And then I think the numbers should rule. Um, and that's the way I think it was designed. And anybody who abuses the process beyond that, especially where, look, I know uh, that you have a lot of respect uh, for Senator Byrd as West Virginia and setting up the bird bath and this rule. But since Jim Crow, the filibuster is not exactly known for being used to do great things. But it is not fair to have you assess a bill that you haven't had time to digest yet. And I'm sure it's going to change. Senator Joe Manchin, you are always welcome here to make the case. Chris, let me, Chris, yes, let me ask you this. Let me, let yes. me ask you this, Chris. Why, why does every state have two senators, no matter how big it is or how large or how many Equal people representation. Why are they treated the same? Equal representation and as a deliberative body. How come, it's the only, how come it's the only body? Why is the Congress different based on population and Because it was assumed that like really the House of Lords, they would be better minds, they'd be more collegial, and they'd be more active in compromise. Well, let's see if we can get there again. I love the optimism.
I'm hoping for I'm it, just buddy. hearing what they're saying on the okay. other side. I'm gonna but keep, Joe Manchin, I'm going to keep trying, my friend. I'm going to keep I know you will, trying. and this will always be a platform for you to make the case. I promise you that. Good luck, and congratulations on getting it Thank done. You, my, thank you, my friend. All right. So, look, Joe Manchin was in a position. This I do know. He was not looking to be in this position. I get it. It sounds like he might, right? Wow, all this power to him. This is great. This is not a position he wanted to have. And there is nothing wrong with being a romantic for bipartisanship, especially in the Senate. But you saw what just happened on this vote. Tough spot for Manchin. Tough spot for the opposition party. So let's bring in what we now know about the state of play as we saw in this bill. Let's bring in the better minds and figure out where we are. Very interesting dynamic unfolding in our Senate, and I think we're going to see a lot more of it because there's some really big trials ahead. Joe Manchin, Senator of West Virginia, took a lot of heat. He's a centrist. Other centrists in the Democratic Party uh, will become more relevant. What does this mean about what Democrats want to get done, what they promised voters? Let's get after it with our better minds, the professor Ron Brownstein and Michael Smirkanish. Uh, first of all, Michael, uh, big win for Biden. This is the largest package of its kind that we have seen in our lifetimes. How does it play politically in terms of getting it done? Well, I think it plays to his benefit. And, you know, as I'm listening to the conversation with Senator Manchin, I'm, I'm thinking that if he didn't exist in the Senate, President Biden would want to invent him. I think he is a great foil for President Biden because he acts as, as a governor in the sense that he keeps uh, at bay those more progressive influences of the party that I don't know that President Biden is always on the same page with. Another observation, if I may, it's fortuitous to be on with Ron Brownstein, whose work I have such respect for. And I remember fondly when at the National Journal, he used to take the ideological pulse of the House and Senate every single year. Joe Manchin and what he represents used to be mainstream. There used mm -hmm. to be a lot of Joe Manchins in the Senate and the House, today all gone. And isn't it nice, at least I say, that power can be vested in the hands of an independent thinker? Now, a lot of Democrats want to beat Smirconish over the head right now, Ron, because they thought that Manchin was like dynamite, trying to blow up the process, making it about him. I think a lot of the criticism was unfair, but that's party yes. politics. So what does this tell you about the state of play in the Senate and the significance going forward? Well, first, I think the, the toll, the changes that Manchin exacted for his support were really minor by historic standards. I mean, if you look back at the 1993 Clinton bill uh, economic plan, the 2009 Obama economic plan, or even the 2001 Bush tax cut, which may be the most relevant precedent, also in a 50-50 Senate, at that point, two Republican senators made him cut it by 25% to get their support. Can you imagine if Joe Manchin had demanded in Kirsten Cinema a 25% cut in this bill? So I, I think he, he asked for only relatively minor changes in the end. Biden proposed 1.9 trillion, got 1.9 trillion. The big question is the one that you discussed with him is, is he willing to constrain the use of the filibuster? And I thought the signals he sent to you as he did this weekend were pretty clear. He's gonna try to work with Republicans, but he's not going to work with them indefinitely uh, if they look to be just simply obstructing. And I think that's going to cheer a lot of Democrats what they heard from him tonight. Quick bounce. Uh, 
uh, Ron, wasn't the original Bird Bath and the Senator Bird from West Virginia, who, um, uh, you know, obviously Joe Manchin is showing some deference to being a senator also, wasn't it different yes. and a lot more restrictive than the one is now? You know, I, I, I can't really answer how, they, how they've used it over the years. I mean, the reconciliation goes back to the 1974 budget bill. It was part of Congress reasserting control over, you know, like with the War Powers Act, that, that era right. of trying to undo the imperial uh, presidency. But certainly, as the filibuster has become more common, Chris, you've seen both sides try to squeeze more and more right. into reconciliation, you know, and pretzeling themselves, as people say. But look, I think Joe Manchin is basically signaling the way out here rather than uh, 60 votes needed to break a filibuster. He's basically signaling support for the 41 required to sustain a filibuster, what Norm Arnstein, the political scientist, has been pushing. And we will see if Republicans are willing to literally stand on the floor hour after hour, day after day, on an issue like denying Americans an increase in the minimum wage. Well, you heard or, Lindsey or Graham. Let's see how Rights reflective Act. he is of the whole, because the numbers on this one, Smirk, last word to you. The country wanted this bill. They want this relief. They see the direct connection to COVID. They don't have to be convinced of that like Mitch McConnell. So what does it mean going forward? Well, I think it's a very important win just one plus month into a brand new administration. Uh, look at it in the alternative. If, if the Biden administration had not been able to get this done at this moment, I think it would have boded poorly for the way the next four years are going to unfold. It was a much needed victory and they're getting it. That's the point. What do you think happens with HR1? Um, look, Not you, I, Ron. Let's be... smirk at the last word. I appreciate oh, it. Sure. I'm short on time. I owe you. Go ahead. Not, not, not as popular. We'll be caricatured from both ends of the spectrum, I think, much more in doubt than what we just saw with COVID relief. Now, that is a bill that may have to be trimmed to just the essential purpose of setting what is fair under federal law and not when it comes to voter guidance in states. We'll see. It's going to play out and pretty soon. Professor, thank you as always. Michael Smirconish, always a plus. <laughs> Praise both. A year into Thanks. the pandemic. Wow. A year into the pandemic. The CDC is finally offering a guide to how to deal with the vaccine. They're also giving you a guide on how to survive an apocalypse, which is almost the same thing based on what we put ourselves through. What is going on with the CDC, especially at a time when you know you have to give people assurances and incentive to take the vaccine? Did they make the right move? Let's unpack it next. For weeks now, people have been getting vaccinated and they're pumped, right? And they've been wondering, what can I do now? What can I do now? Waiting for the CDC. The CDC was taking a long time. Why? Part of it because it takes time to develop science and this is all new territory. But maybe there were some politics also. But people wanted to know, what can I do? What can I do? Now they have their answers. Okay? What you need to know, what was in the meantime, how to prepare for a zombie apocalypse. The CDC had time to put that up. Now, they've been putting it up since 2011. My point is they find creative ways to engage with people to know and think about what they want them to know and think about. Right. So they'll play with the idea of how to get ready for a zombie apocalypse. But where is that on this vaccine? Where is it? Look, they they created that, by the way, just to kind of engage you. Now you have to engage the public to want this vaccine, understand the science behind it, why it's safe and what it does for you other than keep you from dying. That should be enough. It won't be. People want convenience. How do you think we got into this pandemic? 
So the CDC finally came out with its guidance for them today. It was slow, but again, let's blame that on science. Let's discuss, science takes time. Let's bring in Dr. Sanjay Gupta and talk about the guidance. My criticism would be this, Sanjay. First of all, I love you. It's great to see you. The science is developing. I poked around our friends from Operation Warp Speed, and my reporting is this is the safe lane. What they put out today, Mm. you still shouldn't travel. Uh, You got to wear a mask around other people who aren't vaccinated. They say it's not science. They don't know for a fact what the parameters are, but this is playing it safe. Did they need to play it this safe when balanced against the equities of wanting people to want this vaccine? You know, it's, it's, it's a critical question, Chris. And I think, you know, this is as much about messaging as it is about the science. I talked to Andy Slavitt today, you know, well, you know him well. Uh, I think that's basically what they're saying is like, we'll fully admit, they say, that we are under-promising and over-delivering. And that goes with messaging as well. They're, they're, they're being cautious here. There, there's a couple things that really jumped out at me. One is that you heard the term first step over and over again during that press conference, making it clear there's going to be many other steps. The other thing is that, you know, it's always been presented as binary, Chris, do this, not this. But now you're starting to hear a little change in language, low risk, medium risk, high risk. And it gives people more a sense of, of a little bit of autonomy. I'm going to like gauge the risk myself based on what I know. And then finally, this idea ultimately that, um, uh, as we get more people vaccinated right now, we're at 10% roughly fully vaccinated. Once we get to 20%, which could be, you know, in the next 10 to 14 days, the recommendations are likely to change again. The recommendations are tied directly to the percentage of the country that is vaccinated. And that's, you know, we're going pretty fast. You know, another 30 million people in the next couple of weeks is quite likely. And I think the recommendations will change again. That's how Slavich shuts, shuts me up, by the way. He says that that's, these are the recommendations now because you don't have enough people who are vaccinated. Once we get to the part that I'm afraid of, which is convincing people to get the vaccine who don't want it right now, he said, we're nowhere near that. We have a supply issue right now. By the time we have a demand issue, we'll have different level of prophylaxis in the society. We'll know more about it. We'll be able to be yeah. um, more certain about what you can do. You buy that? Yeah, I do. I really do. Because I think, you know, everyone's been sort of focused on this idea of herd immunity. And, and basically, that's part of this binary thing. Until we get to 70, 75, 80 percent of the country vaccinated, nothing changes. And I think people in the scientific community have been saying for a long time, that's not quite true. This, this, it's sort of a curve, you know, or at least a, a downward slope in terms of, uh, you know, the things that people can actually start, you know, loosening up the guidelines uh, as more and more people get vaccinated. It's not just we get to herd immunity and the, and the switch flips. All along the way, we're improving. So, yeah, I, right now with vaccines, we are still in more of a, a demand than, than supply sort of frame. But even as that changes, we're going to see uh, a further liberally, uh, liberalizing of, of the guidelines. People are going to be able to do more things long before I think we actually get to herd immunity. Um, do me a favor, Sanjay. Stick around with me because I experienced something that I've never experienced before. I've never been a royal watcher. You know, I went there to cover uh, the big wedding a bunch of years uh, back, but I was doing this security <laughs> angle on it. Um, but hearing Markle talk about mental illness gave me hope of opening up a discussion that has been squelched in, in this society. I want you to stay and talk about what you heard and what it could mean, if sure. you will. Uh, look, everybody's talking about the interview. There are lots of reasons for that. But there are two that pop out to me. 
Why is there so much pushback on what Meghan Markle said about how race played a role in the respect of that family toward their own child from the right? Why? And her talking about mental health and her pain and her husband saying how it was hard for him to accept that she needed help. What degree of openness could that provide to the rest of our society? Let's talk, talk tough stuff. The role of race here and mental health. Jamel Hill is going to join us with Sanjay Gupta next. The Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan Markle, interview with Oprah Winfrey was a huge deal. That's not a big surprise. But what surprised me was what resonated with me. Everybody knows Oprah is great and she'd put out great television and it would be smart and incisive. But did you hear this part? I just didn't want to be alive anymore. And that was a very clear and real and frightening constant thought. And I remember, I remember how he just cradled me and I was, I went to the institution and I said that I needed to go somewhere to get help. I said that I've never felt this way before and I need to go somewhere. And I was told that I couldn't, that it wouldn't be good for the institution. Right there. What an important thing to acknowledge. One, never easy, right? But to say that she wanted to ask for help and that there was pushback, forget about the royals. It happens in families all over this country all the time. And I wondered, first of all, I just thought it was so authentic and there was so much power in that. But I wonder if it could make a difference for the people, the millions and millions of you who watched last night about how it should be okay. Let me bring back uh, Sanjay Gupta for this. Thank you, brother. I know that you know, you're not a mental health expert, but you're a brain doctor. And you know the stigma. You've been dealing on this issue for a long time. What do you think it could mean to hear a Meghan Markle say what so many in this country feel? And to hear her husband, by the way, the prince, say, God, I didn't really want this to be true. You know, I didn't really know how to handle it. You know, right. that really goes to the root of our struggle here, does it not? It, it, Chris, uh, you, you, you sort of focus on the same thing that, that I heard. And, and two, two things really struck me. One is that she said it, right? Mm-hmm. Because there, there is so much stigma against mental health. One in five Americans, roughly, uh, deal with some sort of mental illness. And almost all of them, if you like, look at organizations like the National Association of Mental Illness, they all have suffered some sort of stigma uh, you know, as a result of it. It's, it's, it's really astonishing. But it was that second part, you asked for help and you couldn't get it. The institution, she said, did not want to allow that to happen. So I'm so glad you're talking about this because I think that's the impression a lot of people are left with is that, okay, I know there's a lot of stigma around this. So if I ask for help and then it is not given to me, that just exacerbates this problem. It is, it is, uh, that was, it's, it's a really, really tough position to be in. And frankly, Chris, you know, I mean, I think that us talking about it like this is so important, but the parity between mental health and physical health still doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't think of mental illness like we think of physical illness. We, we don't think of it that way, and our policies don't reflect it that way. I work in a hospital. I know there are fewer resources for mental illness than there are for physical illness, fewer beds, you know, and fewer, just fewer resources to take care of patients. That's not parity, and that further exacerbates the, the stigma. 
So, you know, I, I think the media, like conversations like we're having right now, if we get something wrong, I hope people call us out on it because if we do it unintentionally in terms of language, people should call us out on it because even if it's unintentional, we got to get this right. Yeah. So I'm really I don't glad know about you're, calling you're, out. you brought up that you know, point. Part of the problem that we have, and I know what you mean, um, this cancel everything that we don't like is a mistake, especially when it comes to this issue, because people are so afraid of being judged on this. Example, I talk about a lot of different stuff on the radio show on Sirius Radio than I do here. Mm -hmm. I'll talk about all my aches and pains and all the different things I'm getting physical therapy on all the time. I talk about my therapist talk therapy, my psychologist. I get crushed. I get crushed. I knew you were crazy. I knew this. I knew that. I'm talking about all other kinds of things, my prostate, my this, my that. Everybody wants to chime in. You talk about getting talk therapy. I didn't even acknowledge an illness. They crush you. That's our culture. And it literally makes people sick. She was talking about suicidal ideation. Not I'm a little blue or I'm afraid to cross the street. This is heavy stuff. And a lot of people are like Markle. Yeah, look, Chris, I'm, first of all, I'm sorry that that, that happens to you. That you, you, you should are, be, because uh, I knew you were one of those uh, callers one time. You're using some other name, but I recognize your voice, Sanjay. <laughs> recognize my voice. And it hurts. Right. Right. It hurts. One of these days you'll get my name right, and then you'll be able to Sanjay Gupta, just look, like your mom. The, <laughs> Same way she look, says. The idea that people, people who, who, uh, who, who admit that they uh, see their therapist, people who, who are dealing with mental illness, oftentimes they won't. Uh, concede the fact that they're seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist. They won't concede it because they themselves uh, know that there's stigma and in some ways, not, not intentionally again, I think that they are probably exacerbating that stigma because they won't, they won't admit it. So I, look, I, I definitely was not one of the people calling you. I, I, I applaud you for, for talking about it. And, and I know it sucks that you get crushed on it, but I'm glad you do it still because it, it makes it better. For other people out there, Chris, that you maybe will never meet. And me getting a proper therapist has freed up some more of your time so that I don't call you with my problems all the time. But the reason <laughs> I do it is the reason everybody does. It's not your specialty, but your specialty is people. You're a beautiful guy. You're a great friend. And you right, do what you. all of us need to do. When somebody's hurting and they reach out or you reach out, see how people are doing, check in, make it all okay. I've stopped talking about illness. I just talk about pain. Do you have pain? Maybe you have pain in your back. Maybe you have pain in your heart. Maybe you have pain in your head. They're all the same. It's all pain. We have to treat it the same. I wanted to bring Jamel Hill in. She's having trouble with her connectivity. I'm going to pick up um, the conversation with Laura Coates in the next segment and move into some uh, trial news also uh, about the I can't breathe case that's going on. Sanjay, Mm. thank you so much. Appreciate you. Love you, Chris. Take care. Uh, One quick thing. Um, A lot of you are mocking Markle online for her suicidal thoughts. Oh, so dramatic. Oh, like your life could be so bad. Look how much your house costs. Stop it. And I'll tell you why. I don't care what you think about Meghan Markle, but think about who's reading and hearing what you're saying. People in your life are struggling. I guarantee it. Now you'll say, oh, well, if it were them, I would mock them. How do you think they hear your words? How do you think they read your tweets? Think about it because they may not reach out to you and that could make the difference in their own wellness. Think about it. Also think about the jury selection that's going on in the death of George Floyd. Got underway a little bit and then they added a charge. Now, that may be a key case in where this case will eventually go. These are very rare occasions. Why? What does it mean? What are the parameters? We have our best Laura Coates. Next. 
Two big court decisions on our watch. The first already decided by SCOTUS, Supreme Court, rejecting another maybe final bid by former President Trump to nullify his electoral loss in Wisconsin. More than 60 losses and just one narrow win that really didn't have anything to do with the legitimacy of the returns. The move brings an end, hopefully, to that campaign. Meantime, a second legal battle is just kicking off in Minneapolis. We will cover it in depth on this show. Jury selection in the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, the officer who kneeled on George Floyd's neck for nearly eight minutes became known as the I can't breathe case. Top legal mind, Laura Coates is here. Laura, I have to ask something very difficult of you. Um, will you wear a political hat for me as well? Because I don't want to ignore one thing that came out of this Meghan Markle thing uh, last night. And I want your perspective. Am I wrong? Chris, I have a Meghan Markle hairstyle today. I'll be happy to join you with that. Thank well, you. Well, listen, uh, good to have you then. The thing <laughs> that struck me is the aftermath to Meghan Markle. I feel like so much of it is familiar to us here. And we're just little freak by being the royals or like everybody else in terms of how they regard the color of a skin. And there's all this discussion even within the African-American or black community about color and some kind of, you know, supposed superiority. But the right has been all over Meghan Markle in this country today. I don't believe her. Why didn't she name names? She threw the whole family under the bus. Why would the political right home to the 1776 again, baby. Why would they be protecting the monarchy? Well, it's, it is shocking to think that because you're talking about a, the fact that we did not want to, as a part of America, be beholden to a monarch. The idea that we're going to protect the colonialism, right. the idea of the history, the reason why you do so is shocking. But I think this is really a death by a thousand microaggressions and the idea that every black woman watching Meghan Markle last night, I, I hate to generalize, but could see a bit of themselves and what she was saying and the idea of being told, no, what's happening to you happens to everybody else. So just someone being rude to you. But there is a distinction and there's an added layer we recognize in the law about when race is an aspect of it, in politics as well, and the idea of how it can exponentially increase already existing um, tensions, existing, exacerbating existing problems. So I looked at that and thought, well, why on earth would people go so far as to dismiss her and dismiss her credibility in a world where we're often talked, talked about and told that we must believe women, that we must have the credibility lead and have the idea of leading with the opportunity to speak and use one's voice. But when it came to Meghan Markle, I guess she needed to be silenced because she had the audacity to point out the very things that our founding fathers rejected when they came across the old pond and founded the United States of America. And I put the word founded in quotation marks for obvious reasons. Right. I mean, also, why would she lie? You know, to me, I thought she did them a favor because I mean, look, it's not a favor for her to talk about this issue to the royals. I get that. But she didn't name names. She could have. Most people across from Oprah Winfrey would because she's so compelling in terms of, you know, how comfortable mm -hmm. she makes you feel and, and how she can do this. Her, her greatness was on display here. Um, very interesting. All right. I just want to get your take on that. We know well, it's. Yeah. And just, I just I, I think she went out of her way, by the way, just to add that, underscore that point. She went out of her way to point out and say that who she thought was a good person. Right. Say it'd be very damaging to them. Yeah. She could have easily done so. It, it, the fact that the truth can be inconvenient does not automatically make it a lie. Yes. hundred percent. Look, I, I just see a race play in it. I do. I'll put it out there. You can attack mm -hmm. me for it. Um, 
Forget about the Supreme Court thing. We know what that's about. Um, people, you know, that, that should be over now. The third degree murder charge in the Chauvin um, trial to me was huge. One, I don't know why they re- removed the, tr- the charge in the first place. But adding that is very important. Why? Well, first of all, the reason they, they took it out in the first place is because there was, it was unclear whether the precedent in Minnesota would allow for somebody to be charged with third-degree murder if they directed their reckless behavior to a single person. The classic case of this sort of a third-degree charge would be driving down a sidewalk in a car because you don't have an intended victim. It's just general wreaking havoc. But once you have a focused person, the case law and precedent suggested that perhaps it wasn't intended for that and you use something else. Well, now it's important to add in in the sense of, first of all, clarifying what is meant by the statute. Could you use the statute for people who have an intended victim and engage in reckless behavior? And it also, it provides some ability to give the jury options. You know, as a prosecutor, you want to be able to give your jury, of course, beyond a reasonable doubt, all the elements to be satisfied. But you also want to give juries who can be really unpredictable, at times fickle, and other times empathetic in the way that you would not expect and say, I'd like to have some middle ground if I can't prove this, higher charge the lower. They put this nestling in between as a contingency of sorts. And so that's an option available to them as well. All right, uh, Laura, thank you very much. We'll see how it unfolds. We'll cover it here in depth when I can have you. Great. When I can't, please send me your notes uh, so I'm covering things the right way. Laura Coates, (laughs) thank you. Of course. Thank you. We'll be right back. Thank you very much. Uh, Big things to discuss. So we must go to the big show CNN tonight and it's big star D Lemon. I love that conversation you were just having. Why? Uh, Because there's so much about uh, colorism and shading and, you know, we these these are the talks that we have. All the time. You and I have all the time. And by the way, let me just say something about Friday. Do you mind if I talk about that? No, I'm sure people will love it. <laughs> no. In truth, leave it alone. Let's stick with what okay. the positive is. All right, is. if you want to do it. Stick with anyway. the positive. We don't need to cause problems that don't exist. We have enough <laughs> that do exist. I, did, it, I thought it was much ado about nothing. Listen. And, and I think, I think this, look, I know you don't want to talk about it. This is why you want, this is the reason I wrote the book. This is why you have conversations with people who don't look like you so that you can have a degree of comfort with them to be able to discuss these things and you know their intentions. So, as I always say, and I've said to you since I've met you, and you know that, if you don't have a friend who looks up like, doesn't look like you, you're not doing it right. I hear you. Look, I got a lot of black friends, but none like you. You're one one of one uh, (laughs) in my book. And... I'll tell you why I thought it was relevant. One, I'm always happy to talk about what I say. I'm more inclined to talk about what I do versus what other people do when they want to talk about what I say. Yeah. But we'll leave that to the side because people don't follow these issues. Right. And the reason I thought Meghan Markle was really impressive to me was, one, talking about your pain ain't easy. It's okay. Not. Even with Oprah Winfrey, uh, who may be the most empathic person I've ever seen on television. Yeah. But still. And Oprah, for the were right they, to were come they, out, oh, they said what? Yes. To get you to say, yes, Oprah, they said that. Yes. Can you believe it? She, right. she just, right. she is real. She's right. real in every mode. It's beautiful to watch. Why is the right coming after Meghan Markle? I thought they were about anti-elitism. I thought they were about 1776 again. Why are they coming after her for saying that the royals didn't like 
the, the, the shade of the baby? Why doesn't the kid have any standard? Why would she lie? What does this do for her? What does this do for her husband? Because they're absolutely willing to believe that um, the, I think they believe that the mental health angle of it may be correct, right? Um, that the maybe postpartum depression part of it may be But why correct. would Harry feel that way? Okay. It's not contagious. But they're not willing to believe the racism or the racist part of it. What does that say about the people who are coming after her? And there are a lot of people who are, a number of people who are out there who are coming after her, and they're doing it because they want to be relevant. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. But and, it's, it's, it's more pernicious than that to me. Yes, well, there's, always, there's always people looking yeah. to hate as opportunity. It works great on the Internet. But it just didn't, it, it, it was so weird to me. It says more about them than it says about her. Well, look, again, I didn't, I'm a pretty good judge of credibility. You know, I've been a trained observer of human behavior for 25 years. What I'm saying is she has no motive to lie. She gained nothing. She's not Mm. suing. And why would so many people on the right think it's so important to say that this brown person was messed up for saying how these white people didn't like the color of her baby? And then look, the mental health stuff to me was a home run because to discuss pain, forget illness, to discuss pain that your husband was worried about, he didn't know how to handle it, he felt weird about it, that the institution, the royals didn't want you to get help. So many people live with that here. The institution is your family, your friends, your job, your social standing. There it was the royals. I was knocked out by it. I hope it helps people open up. Well, because people don't want to believe it. People don't want to believe it. Listen, people don't want to deal with the original sin of this country. People don't want to deal with racism. There are racism deni- deniers all over. We're living in a racism denier time right here in the United States, and I think in the U.K. as well. People don't want to deal with it because, and that is, that, that is as I say to you, Chris, that's the height of privilege. For you to be able to live in a world where it does not exist or that you can deny it is the height of privilege. Until Harry, sadly, had this very rude awakening when all of a sudden he got a black fiance and a black wife and then a black baby. He had a rude awakening, and I'm glad that he had this awakening or this epiphany because now he knows. But most people don't have to deal with it because they don't. It doesn't exist to them. So they, they, if it doesn't exist, what does that mean? And you, I'll can, tell you, you, can, you can absolutely deny it. Absolutely. And there's a comfort that people take. And I've seen it in and around me. Look, I'm not like that. So that's enough. No, no. Only the majority can change racism. The minority can't change it. Yeah. Uh, They don't have the power. It has to be that it is unacceptable to the majority on every level of systemic inequality. And, you know, now that's called an ally. And, you know, and there is still a lot of reflex ugliness. Oh, look at him. Look at Cuomo trying to do anything he can, you know, to be with the, uh, the, you know, the black community, the brown community. There's still a stigma attached to that, too. Yeah. It was like stigma fest watching that interview for me. (laughs) It was. It was like, wait, why are these conservatives attacking her about lying about the royals? It has to be a color play. How can it not be about it? It's as I said, it says. Things sometimes when people speak up and they say things, it reveals more about them than they want to reveal or that they should. And so I think all those people who are coming after her, rather than saying, rather than doing it with empathy or with an open mind or saying, well, why, rather than being um, 
they're being judgmental instead they're of being curious. being accusatory. And accusatory instead of curious about, well, why does she feel that way? Why might she feel that why way? Why won't she per- say the names? Why won't she I'm say the names? I'm happy she didn't say the names. Why would she want to destroy that person? Perhaps. You know, I mean, she's hurt, but. Per, perhaps um, that she has an issue. Perhaps this is I have a shortcoming. Perhaps I have an unconscious bias. Until until you do something like until you do that, it's never going to change. Then I you hear just, you. You live in that world. Now you I want to in, tee something up for you, and I'll leave you alone. Okay. What covering what? this trial is going to be a bear with Derek Chauvin. Yeah. Because there is going to be a flood of conflicting testimony from the officers at the scene. And the problem for a jury is. What are you doing? You're trying to assess whether any other explanation other than the prosecutors makes as much sense as their story. That's beyond a reasonable doubt, layman's version, when you're in the room. Does anything else make as much sense as what they're saying? When you have a flood of testimony from all people involved in an event, it can get confusing fast. Them adding the third degree murder charge, I've been looking into it. They removed it. Laura Coates was spot on, as always. So smart that it really goes to like almost terrorism without the political motivation where you drive into a crowd. That's third degree. In New York, they call it depraved mind murder and often misapplied as a middle ground. They added it. They want to add it back. And I think that it is a window into they know they have a tough case. Well, I think I I think beyond that, that they. It's also going to be the character assassination um, on, you know, during the trial. Oh, yes. Well. And you'll hear that in the testimony. Yeah. He I, seemed like he was on drugs. You know, he seemed like he was having this. It has nothing to do with anything. It doesn't have anything to do with anything. But except for the court of public opinion. And maybe it could sway a jury. If it I gets got, into the trial. But I just want to say we're going to cover it. I know you're going to cover it. We'll probably cover it together at some point. It's going to be a bear and people have to focus. They have to listen. They have to be open. And then we'll see what happens. I got to run. I like love 10 you, Dean minutes Lemon. ago. <laughs> I love you too, my brother. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.